Hi there, folks, and welcome to the Rules of Investing brought to you by Livewire Markets. My name's James Marley. I'm a co-founder at Livewire, and I'm your host for what will be the final episode of the Rules of Investing for 2023 and what a year it's been. But just because uh, it's the last episode doesn't mean it won't be the best. In fact, we have a special guest today making a debut on the Rules of Investing. Uh, Dion Hershan, who is the Executive Chairman and Head of Equities at Yarra Capital, is joining us. Dion, great to have you on the call. Thanks for your time today, James. Appreciate the opportunity. Now, Yarra is based in Melbourne and has investment strategies across Australian equities, global equities, fixed income and multi-asset. Dion's been with the firm since inception in 2017 and prior to that was head of Australian equities at Goldman Sachs Asset Management. In today's chat, we'll be discussing the signals that Dion is following, why the blue chips of today could have their status challenged, the opportunities in mid-cap stocks, and we'll also take a look at an unloved sector on the ASX. But before we talk about the opportunities you're seeing in markets, Dion, it would be awesome if you could introduce Yara to listeners and provide a bit of context to the firm. Yeah, thanks, James. Look, to provide a bit of context, Yara, as you indicated, is about a seven-year-old business. Uh, In fact, it was a management buyout of what was most of Goldman Sachs Asset Management Australia. Uh, I've worked for Goldman Sachs for about a decade before we uh, we affected the management buyout. And as the name would suggest, and as you indicated before, obviously, we're a Melbourne-based business. Look, the genesis of Yarra was we really wanted to be an independent, focused funds management organisation as, as opposed to being part of a conglomerate. And we really wanted to make sure not only we could invest for our clients for the long term, but we could also invest in our own business for the long term. And that's very much how we've operated throughout our seven-year history. So as it stands today, we're about a $20 billion business. We'd be one of the larger independent funds management businesses in the country. We have about 90 staff. Um, What we invest in is reasonably broad-based, but a common thread is most of it relates to the Australian financial markets and the Australian economy. So we're very active in Australian equities, and that's everything from large-cap companies through to micros. In fixed income, we're active in credit, we're active in bonds, and more recently, we've also stepped in and started investing in private capital in, into late-stage businesses and also private debt. So, you know, we really work for quite a diverse array of clients, uh, majority of which are in Australia, but not all. They're institutional clients, they're family offices, high net worth, but we also have a number of overseas clients, uh, largely from Asia, that are banks or sovereign wealth funds. So, look, the ethos of our firm, which is really important, and the culture of the firm is we start with a fiduciary mindset. We we exist for one purpose, which is strong risk-adjusted returns for our clients. But in doing so, we're very much a research-led organisation. We take fundamental views. And as I said before, we invest uh, for the long term on behalf of our clients. Well, we're going to dig into some of the views that that you've got on markets and also how you gather information across that that breadth of asset classes. But before we, we do that, I'd just love to... Uh, learn a bit more about how you think about investing and, and why you've chosen this particular career. Your professional background, you had a stint at Boston Consulting Group before moving into investing where you took a role as an analyst at Fidelity. Why did you decide to go into into investing? Yeah, look, I, I think from a reasonably young age, I think I always had the bug. Uh, you know, as a young kid, I was always talking about companies and businesses and trying to learn as much as I possibly could. I was fascinated with trading things and understanding what they were worth. So in some respects, that was a bit of a natural segue. 
I actually bought my first stock when I was 12 years old and it was some dodgy gold mining company where I learned a lot of lessons at a relatively early age about speculation and relying on other people's views. Um, but that was very much my grounding. And I think, it, frankly, it only, depending how you think about it, only progressed or descended from there. And I think by that 16 years old, I was trading stock options. But um, by my very nature, I'm an analytical person, I'm fascinated by markets, uh, love learning, and you know, like taking educated risks. And you know, that was very much why I've gone down the path of having an investment career. And it's obviously something I'm pretty passionate about. Genuinely enjoy reading, learning, debating, uh, meeting companies and forming views and investing on behalf of our clients. Now, that role at Fidelity was while you were in the US and during that stint, you also worked at Ken Griffin Citadel, uh, which has grown to be the most profitable hedge fund of all time. Uh, your time there was just after the tech wreck. What do you recall from that period? Yeah, look, I was at Citadel in the early 2000s. And look, as you said, the, the firm's track record speaks for itself. Um, it's a very passionate, driven organisation, um, fascinated by financial markets, hugely analytical, big focus on risk, um, some extraordinary and bright minds around the organisation. And, you know, in some respects, I was lucky to work there. And 20 years later, all the lessons that I learned um, still carry through with me today. Um, but it is, frankly, it's one of sort of the epicenters of global investing, and I certainly learned a lot and enjoyed my time when I was there. Was there anything specific about that time that you've taken with you? Um, I guess people would love to get a bit of a window into how a hedge fund like that operates. Yeah, so I guess when I was there, if I think about my early investment career, I started off at Fidelity Investments, which was literally the dot-com bust and, and blow-up, which is extraordinary times. And then I was at Citadel, there was an emerging markets crisis in 2004 to 2006, um, which had very similar attributes, but focused on a different market. So, you know, what you take from your time at Citadel is always trying to get a fundamental view on a company, um, always making sure that when you're looking at companies, you're looking at all sides of the balance sheet. The way we used to invest at Citadel is you'd find an opportunity. And then the second question would be, what's the best way to tackle it? Is it to go long or is it to go short? The third question would be, in light of that directional view, what's the best part of the capital structure to actually attach your view to? Are you better off buying the CDS? Are you better off buying equity? Are you better off buying subordinated debt? Would you rather own a convertible? So what it forced you to do is really think through all permutations for owning a company and also all sort of data signals that are out there. And I think one of the strengths of Citadel, and it's probably the case obviously still to today, is taking a series of ideas, constructing them in intelligent portfolios and being brutally self-aware of both the risk you're taking and why and also being really close to it in the event that things are actually going against you. Just before we dive into what you're looking at in markets today and, and some of the things that are live at the moment, I often like to ask people how they explain their philosophy for investing to someone that's outside the investment industry, if you're at a barbecue, and, and maybe just exp explain the thinking that, that supports that position. So, you know, if someone was, wasn't um, across all of the different technical terms with investing, how, how would you explain to them your, the way that you go about it? Yeah, it's a good discipline. It's one of the disciplines that we always had when, how well is it, Fidelity, which was the classic elevator pitch. In 30 seconds or less, how do you explain something? So I'll, I'll attempt to do that now. It's also I always felt it's a good litmus test, not that I'm smart, but I've always thought smart people can make things sound simple. 
and simple things, simple people can make things sound complex. So if I was to just try to sort of distill into a few sentences what we do and how we do it, at Yarra, we've got a 25-person research team. You know, we scour the economy and financial markets to really try to find high-quality businesses in good industries with good management teams. And if we can find those businesses at reasonable valuations, we tend to hold them for the long term. So once you've found amazing businesses you've researched and you feel that there's real value, the secondary part of the conversation is how do you assemble them together in a sensible portfolio with good diversification and an awareness of the risks? So hopefully that's a reasonably simple way of explaining who we are and what we do. Yeah, great. And listen, I look forward to, to digging deeper into some of those views as we go through the podcast. But I'm going to take us up to the, the bigger picture now. And regular listeners to this podcast will be familiar with Tim Tui, who is a, an economist who was with yeah. Goldman Sachs, highly awarded for a long time. He now works at Yarra as your in-house economist. Um, and, and it yeah. tells to me that the firm pays a lot of attention to what's happening in the macro environment. Um, so I'm keen to put to you, Dion, what are the most important pieces of information that you take from someone like like Tim Tui um, and, and some of the other portfolio managers in the business and, a, as lead indicators? Yeah. Yeah, I'll start by setting the scenes and I'll elaborate, 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 elaborate a bit more about how we work with Tim. Look, at, at Yarra, we're most typically bottom-up investors, but having said that, there's an enormous amount of macro information that's hugely important, particularly in an economy and a stock market as narrow as Australia. So I think we are in a privileged position where, you know, if you look at the Australian market, the ASX 200, 20% of its banks, so interest rates, employment, GDP, credit growth, they're critically important, that 20% of its resources. So understanding China is absolutely central to getting those large sectors right. So we try to balance the bottom-up work of understanding companies with the top-down and macro work that comes from the inside of having someone like Tim and also the great macro work that's done by a lot of our fixed-income teams. Um, so we feel that you know it's, it's almost like mosaic theory. You want to put things together from different places with different signals so you can debate and you can understand um, the full picture associated with a company, a sector, or an opportunity. And there's countless examples over recent years how we feel like that's helped our investors out. As far as sort of working with Tim, um, Tim's wonderful to work with. As you know, his knowledge is almost encyclopedic. He's forensic about data. He's got an uncanny ability to prioritise things. And what's interesting uh, when you talk to Tim is most of the data sources he's got are actually quite widely available. It could be GDP numbers. It could be ABS data. But what he's able to very often do is cut down to what actually matters, distill and prioritise the most important facts, often find errors, but most importantly, take that data and turn it into actionable investment ideas. Um, there's plenty of economists that can make predictions. There's very few that actually can turn it into actionable and accurate investment ideas. And that's been one of the hallmarks of, of who we are and the work we do in conjunction with Tim. Um, I'd really love for you to take our listeners inside the room at, at Yarra and talk about um, the factors or, or the um, you know the inputs that you're spending the most time debating amongst the team right now. Yeah, so one of the raging debates we're having at the moment, and it's probably a lot of people are having this debate, is the outlook for inflation and rates. And there, there simply isn't a stock where those two variables don't matter. You know, inflation's got enormous implications for pricing, for margins, and obviously for interest rates. And this is where, frankly, as a firm, it's wonderful to pick stocks from the bottom up, but you also have to have a few on these, on these key dimensions. 
And our contention here is there's a lot of persistency to the inflation in the Australian economy. The Australian economy is still operating really tightly. If you look at utilisation, if you look at the low levels of unemployment, and if you look at the scarcity of some assets. So our contention is that uh, inflation is trending down. The risk is stating the obvious. It's still too high. It's going to be some time before it's actually in the range. And in light of that, rates will probably stay persistent at around these levels. I won't refer to the current interest rates as high because that's a frame of reference discussion. Now, for some people, the central bank rate at four and three, five uh, is enormously high because their frame of reference is around zero. Um, people with a 10 or a 20 year purview would probably say they're low interest rates. I happen to think we're in a reasonably normal environment. A normal environment is one that's it's bumpy, it's a grind, um, inflation's above where we'd like to see it to be. But having said that, I don't think rates are going to get cut anytime soon. And that might be one of the mistakes that are embedded in financial markets, this view that um, there'll, be a, there'll be a loosening cycle in the next six to 12 months, which will benefit all asset classes. Mm. Um, the other thing that we've seen is, um, you know, it's interesting, those comments around inflation starting to roll over and, and it seems like investors are tripping over themselves to buy that, that rate-cutting cycle. Yeah. If we look at the 10-year bond, which is obviously super important for, for pricing of assets, do you think we've seen the peak there? Yes, obviously, are you referring to the US 10-year or the Aussie 10-year? US 10-year. The most important, but it's like the US 10-year, okay. Uh, it's funny you mentioned, I had a bet with someone about two months ago when the US 10-year was at five, and I think my bet was it would be 4.3 within 12 months. And interestingly, it's already undershot that at sort of 4.1 the last time I looked at it this morning. Again, it's really hard to be too precise. Um, what I would say, though, is the US went through a far more abrupt tightening cycle than Australia. I mean, their rates got with five handle in front of it. So there's probably more likely to be rate cuts in the US at the front of the curve than there actually would be in Australia. Um, look, my sense is you know, interest rates in the long bond, and Tim would have a stronger view than I would in the US, could well gravitate in this 35 to 4.5% range for the foreseeable future. So again, I feel like we're back in a, in a more typical environment for rates. And as you said, the fall in rates uh, recently has been quite significant. It's to the benefit of asset prices. But we really don't think we're going back to a 2% 10-year bond anytime soon. And by the way, if we are, it's for bad reasons, not good reasons. That's the almighty economic crash um, for rates and interest rate expectations to fall that far. Yeah. Um, Dion, just interested in the Australian scenario. You talked there about the fact that the reference point for rates um, you know, is different for different people. There are a lot of people that would have mm. taken on mortgages or, or debt for cars yeah. or whatever it might be over the yeah. over, over recent history that are starting to feel quite a bit of pain. Um, and we've seen it, Commonwealth Bank had some mm. interesting slides around those benefiting from rate hikes and those who are, are, are bearing the brunt of it. Sure. What are your expectations around how the consumer, what are your views on how the consumer is faring as we head into 2024? Do you feel like there's... There's more pain to be felt there? Sure. The way I think about it, let's start with the aggregate and then let's then disaggregate it. Um, The way I think about it is, on average, we think the consumer is going to be fine in 2024. Now, I'll qualify my comments by saying I think there's going to be enormous amounts of dispersion and there will be the best and the worst of times for different people, unfortunately. Uh, The easiest way to think about it would be most of the pain in the economy is being transmitted via higher interest rates and via mortgages. Australia has circa $2.5 trillion of mortgages and housing stock worth circa $10 trillion. So overall, the houses aren't over-levered 
across the board. But what there are is there are pockets of, of the economy where people are overlevered, and a lot of them got mortgages at low rates, as you intimated, and they're feeling the pain. The key thing to really call out there is only one third of Australians have a mortgage. That statistic often surprises people. One third rent a home and one third own a home outright. So the pain is really concentrated in the one third of people that have a mortgage. Um, worth recognising other parts of the economy are going exceedingly well. Really low levels of unemployment, fastest wage growth we've seen probably in a decade, albeit still slightly below inflation. So the pain is amongst mortgage holders, unfortunately. And the way we think about the overall consumer is we think the overall consumer slides through. We might talk about property trust later on the conversation, but that's central to our thesis. Um, but the way we think about it is there'll be different quintiles and there'll be different outcomes. <clears throat> As it turns out, the bottom 40% of the Australian economy in income terms account for about 26% of expenditure. And unfortunately, that bottom 40% are probably going to do it tough for the next few years. In contrast, the top one quintile, the top 20%, account for 34% of expenditure. So the way we think about it is the strength at the top end and the top end are the people that typically long physical assets. They're the people that hold the one and a half to two trillion dollars of deposits that have benefited from higher rates. Our contention is the strength at the top will probably be enough to offset the weakness at the bottom. So at a headline level, it will look okay. Um, but you know there'll be a lot of dispersion inside those numbers. So as with everything, averages can be really misleading. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, why don't we change tune and, and, and dig into your um, area specialty, Australian equities? Uh, you recently wrote an article calling out uh, slow-moving trends that have over time uh, dethroned some of the blue chips or the, or the most established companies on the ASX. Mm. Um, for listeners, I'll, I'll put a link to the article in the notes for the podcast, but Dion, could you explain to to our listeners some of the work that you've you've put in there? Yeah, I guess it's it's a body of work that the team did, really challenging the incumbency and the notion that there are permanent blue chip companies. And you know, people get a false sense of comfort to say it's a big company, it pays a dividend, it's a safe place to invest. And our view is there are a lot of companies that do actually get dethroned over time. They get dethroned because there's change in the competitive landscape, regulation, complacency, technology breakthroughs. So this notion that you can simply buy and hold things forever uh, needs to be challenged. And our view is we are long-term investors, but we are paranoid long-term investors, and we're always testing and retesting what we own and why. Um, What you can say in the Australian economy is it's reasonably narrow, it's reasonably mature, and there's a lot of duopolies and, and oligopolies that are out there. Um, but many of them tend to decay over time. You know, the most obvious example is probably the Australian banking sector. And, you know, there's a view that it's an oligopoly and there's no competition and they earn excess returns, which is a convenient narrative, but it's actually challenged by the facts. The facts are that three of the big four banks had higher share prices in 2007 when Kevin Rudd was elected. There's been no capital appreciation for over 15 years. Um, the ROEs for the banking sector have been in decline for about a decade and their margins have halved over 30 years. So it's not sufficient to say I'm safe because I own blue chip banks. Industries are changing really dramatically. And that could well be evident as you look at some of the other big parts of the economy as well, which is like the iron ore sector. You know, about 15% of the ASX 200 is companies that are majority iron ore. And if you take a view that we've reached peak urbanisation in China and we've reached peak steel production, and by the way, 
There's a lot of scrap steel becoming available, which is an alternative. And there's a lot of new iron ore mines coming on. That's a big blue chip part of the market in inverted commas that could really get tested over time. So our view is, you know, you've got to maintain the rage, you've got to be paranoid, you've got to keep testing and retesting things in the same way that A&P was one of the penultimate blue chips 20 years ago and now it's almost a small cap company. Um, same to be said for Lendlease. Um, we, we take a view you need to actively manage portfolios and really test and retest. Yeah. Australian investors and many readers on Livewire, um, you know, who own banks and miners, many have done well out of those companies over time, particularly the dividends, which I think, um, you know, if you, you put the banks and the miners together, I think they, they pay out more than 50% of the dividends for the ASX 200. Do you think there's a time where these stalwarts face similar risks? And, and, and in that article, you highlighted a bunch of companies, Boral, uh, JPT, others that have fallen out of that blue chip status. Do you think that there's a chance yeah. that some of these banks become, you know, fall out of that top 20? Yes, I mean, mathematically, the, the, the big four banks are, I think, amongst this, probably the top eight companies. So a lot would have to go very wrong for all of them to fall out of the top 20s, which is one sort of statement of the obvious. But have we seen their peak returns? In my opinion, we probably did five or six years ago. Um, are the dividends going to grow over time? I think that's extraordinarily difficult to do from here. And our view is it's one thing to get dividends. And we, we always think of Yarra as being a total return investor. We, we like dividends like everybody else, but it shouldn't be at the expense of capital. And you know, our view is you need to find companies that can grow both the capital side of the, of the, of the equation and dividends simultaneously. Because for many people, we're in a different environment. It's the first time in 12 years that you can get a higher yield on a term deposit than you can the ASX 200. So our contention is if all you want is income, there are plenty of places to go. Um, we want to get the total return. So your you question around could it be challenged for banks and miners? Absolutely. And if I look at how we're currently constructing our portfolios, it's not a surprise. You know, we're meaningfully underweight those two sectors. So if you if you underweight those sectors, what are the sorts of things that are going into the portfolio? What are the – I'm assuming you wanted to own growth um, and, and find companies that have got, yeah. um, you know, that, that, that ability to continually compound – yeah, so for us, it's not about just growth or value. It, it's about having decent balance in our portfolios. Uh, but it's not going to come as a surprise. Some of the best opportunities we think we're seeing in the marketplace today are tech and new media companies. You know, where we're talking about companies like we own Zero, we own car sales, we own Seek. And the common thread, actually, is they're proven business models. They're companies with really strong pricing power. They've got good organic growth. Their markets aren't mature at all. And they have, you know, what we refer to as high incremental margins. The next dollar of revenue drops a lot of profit to the bottom dollar. So we think they're great businesses for this sort of slow grinding environment that I described before for the Australian economy. So tech is a sector that's of real interest to us. Um, other places we quite like at the moment is the insurance sector. Insurance on its best day is unbelievably boring, but it does get leverage to higher interest rates, got good pricing power. And we're coming off a really unusual period of time where there's been enormous adverse claims experience and there's no certainties, but that will probably normalise. Hmm. Um, what are the, the attributes, uh, you know, of, of, of the companies? Are that You've talked about a, com a couple of different sectors there, quite different insurance hmm. from technology. Are there any specific attributes yeah. that 
um, your process needs to identify or seeks before a, a company can make its way into your portfolio? Yeah, look, what you often look for is good industry structures. Because if you've got a good industry structure and a good competitive position inside of that industry, it tends to be very forgiving. It's forgiving if the economy moves against you. It's forgiving if you know, management teams make mistakes. Um, you can sort of ride your way out of it. So we often talk about the fact that quality is one of the best forms of defense. You know, businesses will go up and down with the economy, but quality businesses tend to have less permanent damage and tend to rebound relatively quickly and reasonably robustly. So that's the common thread for us. In an ideal world, you won't always get everything you're looking for. It's a good industry structure. It's a good competitive position. It's a good management team. It's the appropriate balance sheet. It's not to say it always has to be no debt. It's got to be an appropriate balance sheet. Um, but I also feel that we're in an environment where you know, inflation could well be persistent. Um, labor markets are really tight. And if you haven't got good pricing power, it could well be a challenging three to five years. So that's something that we're putting an extra emphasis on at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned zero earlier. I was wondering, is, is there a, um, a, a stock that you could share with us or, or, or bring to life that talks about the, the attributes that, that you really like, particularly for that environment that we're facing that you've, you've described for the you know what could be a persistent higher inflation period over the next few years? Yeah. Yes, often what we like to do is find awesome businesses that are going through some form of temporary dislocation or some sort of market overreaction where it doesn't happen often, but when you get the chance to buy great businesses at bargain prices, that's really when you do want to back the truck up. And, you know, I'd probably say ResMed's an example of that at the moment, where um, it's been a fortress business, great market share, quite an underpenetrated business. They've consistently grown quickly. And you might well be aware there's a new cohort of drugs coming out of the US called GLP-1s which a lot of people think will end obesity globally, which is, I think, wishful thinking, and in doing so, displace the need for people to have sleep apnea devices. So you've gone from probably one of Australia's highest-performing, highest-valued businesses on the market to what was a fallen angel in the space of six months. And our view is these drugs are real, they're meaningful, they'll be of limited benefit to big... So they'll be of benefit, but to a limited part of the population. And with... With ResMed, you've got a fallen angel, and they're the types of opportunities which we feel as a business we're set up to research well and then step up when the time's right. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I saw some research. ResMed has a listing in the States as well, um, and, and a researcher put up a list of the companies that it was the top 20 or top 50 companies that are um, the highest returning companies over the past two decades, and ResMed was ranked number 19. So, um, you know, shows that the track record is not there. Um, we're going to talk, you know, a fallen angel. Um, I love that idea. You also published in July um, five themes that were kind of on your long-term shopping list. So you were talking about positioning, wanting to position for a, a longer period of time. And one of the sectors that was on there was was REITs, um, which has been, you know, if you, if you think ResMed's a fallen angel, I'd say REITs was one of the most unloved sectors in the market this year. Yeah. Um, and I understand it's your biggest overweight um, in your portfolio. Um, so I was just keen to understand the thesis um, behind um, getting involved yeah. in REITs and, and what you're seeing that maybe other investors might not um, be appreciating about it. How are you thinking differently there? Yeah, you hit on a key point with, with one of your questions. I think 
to get outsized returns over time in what is a competitive and efficient market, you need to think and act differently. And as an organisation, we're always happy to challenge the consensus. And if our research supports it, we feel very comfortable standing away from the crowd. And I think REITs are a prime example of that. I would one qualify thing. They're not our largest overweight in the portfolio, but they are an overweight in our portfolio. Um, I guess the first comment is people have been reasonably indiscriminate around REITs. They've all sold off almost uniformly. A lot of the issues relate to two things, which is views on interest rates and also views on the office sector. Now, our view is a lot of the issues in the office sector are structural. It's oversupplied. Demand patterns have changed. And frankly, we're not going anywhere near the office space. What we felt was underappreciated was the resilience of actually high-quality shopping malls. I talked before about this environment of the consumer just being reasonably flat but quite uneven. Shopping malls really only care if the tenants are, are occupying the space, paying the rent, and the rents go up over time. And when you look at some of the high-quality shopping malls in Australia, what you f- I mean, the facts are so different from the conventional wisdom that everyone talks about. You find a lot of these malls like Vicinity or Region Group, they've got 99% occupancy. They're growing their rent each and every year. Um, their operating costs have got very, very modest growth. Of course, their cost of debt has gone up, but they're actually appropriately geared. And these things are now trading at 20 to 30% discounts to their reported net tangible assets. And we know the reported numbers are probably a touch high, but they're not a mile high. So we feel if you can buy quality assets well below their intrinsic value, sit on good dividends and scope for capital appreciation, now's a good time to step up. And whilst they might not sound exciting, our view around a balanced portfolio is you should have some excitement in your portfolio, and that might be the zero or the car sales or the ResMed. You should also just have some stalwarts that pay good dividends, they're resilient businesses, and you sleep well at night knowing you own them. In that article specifically when you were talking about REITs, you mentioned this concept of buying before the last downgrade. I was wondering if you could explain that to yeah. listeners because it sounds like the sort of thing that would maybe make you feel a bit sick in the stomach. Yeah, and I, we often refer to that. I think some of the best ideas you'll ever have in your portfolio will feel distinctly uncomfortable on the day you put the trades on. You, your stomach will churn. Some of the best ideas I've ever had in my career were actually some of the ones where your stomach churned and your hands were trembling when you put the trade on. Uh, that's often a, a good lead indicator, by the way. Uh, so I guess the way we, we think about that is you've got to be willing to challenge the conventional wisdom. You've got to be willing to think, think differently. Um, so many times people say, I'd love to buy that stock or that would be a great opportunity. But by the way, there's a downgrade coming. Or, by the way, we know the NTA is too high. By the time... Every person knows something. It's typically factored into the price. You know, literally I was in Perth two years ago and my Uber driver was pitching me lithium stocks. It was the cliche moment. And if that wasn't one of the ring the bell signs, you'll never get another one as clear as that. Um, So our view is often, if you think a downgrade is well known, you think it's embedded in the share price, you're much better off progressively buying into that event where you can get liquidity, you can build positions, um, because by the time it's it's front page in the newspapers, it's often too late. And just one more question on, on REITs. You, you touched on a few of the things that you, you know, earlier on you touched on a few of the things you want to own, but could you maybe just step me through, um, you know, how you've gone through the selection process from the REIT sector? Because clearly you haven't bought the whole 
um, all, all of them you've been selective. Yeah. You've talked about screening out office. What are some yeah. of the other steps that you've gone through to find the ones that you're willing to own? Yeah, so we looked, when we pulled apart the, the REIT space, you know, broadly speaking, there are four sub-asset classes. There is uh, REIT, there is malls, there is office, there is industrial, and there is other. And others a catch cry for a whole lot of specialty REITs. Um, our view is office, the issues with structurals, mass amounts of oversupply, and I referred to that a moment ago. Uh, the industrial sector, there were some good assets. Rent growth is strong, but valuations didn't make any sense to us. The cap rates had simply been bid to be so low um, we felt that introduced not operating risk to the businesses, but valuation risk to the assets. We often talk about is there risk to the business or risk to the valuation. Sometimes you get both. Um, so we arrived at the view that, that shopping malls were probably the third preferred place to invest. And then you literally go through a, a process of prioritizing them. And what we felt was good was either things that skewed towards luxury for all the things I described before, how the top end will probably fare better than the bottom end of the economy in the next three to five years and also things that skewed it towards everyday needs. And they're the types of things which are unlikely to be displaced by e-commerce. And they're the types of things where you will always get, you know, if good location, the right foot traffic. So that was really the framework we used, and that's guided us to, to owning a narrower group of a property trusts. Yeah. Great. Well, listen, we're about to step into our, our three regular questions um, that we ask on each podcast. But, but before we do that, I was hoping, Leon, we c- I could maybe just get a bit of a temperature check on, on what you're feeling in the markets at the moment. Um, this year has been characterised by a low volume of um, IPOs. Um, we've noticed of late there's been some um, what appear to be opportunistic um, uh, uh, acquisitions or, or transactions taking place. We've had Santos and Woodside wanting to get together Um Petrol has been a contested asset with Solpats lobbing a bid. What's your temperature check around where the market's at in terms of risk appetite? Do you think IPOs are, are ready to come back? Is, is this takeover activity a sign of assets looking cheap? What, what's your, your, your kind of market pulse telling you? Yeah, there's a fair bit in that question. I, I guess the way we describe it is confidence is really fragile. And that plays out, you know, as someone pointed out to me, if you're not confused now, you're probably not paying attention. I mean, there are so many cross currents in financial markets and one month everyone thinks rates are going up and the next month they're convinced they're going down. Um, So there's a lot of noise in financial markets. You know, I think you you alluded to it before, IPOs um, typically go from feast to famine, right? And 2021 was a feast. There were 30 IPOs in Australia, above $50 million. The last two years, we've probably only averaged one or two deals per year, all of which from memory have traded pretty poorly. The IPO market suffers from two or three things. It suffers from the fragility around confidence. It suffers from the fact that there really haven't been many high quality businesses that tried to go public. And they've also suffered from unrealistic vendor expectations. So in some respects, there's a buyer strike. You know, investors have got capital, but they're not seeing the right companies at the right prices. And that's why no deals are getting done. You know, the M&A landscape in Australia is a little bit more episodic and there's a bit of a fourth quarter flurry going on at the moment in terms of activity. Um, Time will tell how many of these deals actually close. You know, a lot of what we're seeing is talks, intentions, possibly bids, but you've only got to look at the the saga around origin to realise that a lot of these deals aren't actually closing. Um, What you could say, though, is private equity firms and financial sponsors haven't been particularly active because the cost of debt and credit spreads is very, very prohibitive. 
Um, in Australia, a lot of our industries are already quite concentrated, so the ACCC is a bit of a party killer in terms of more in-market mergers. Uh, but we are still seeing some bids and we are seeing some deals, but I just don't think we're going to get anything close to the levels of activity we saw three or four years ago. Well done on deconstruct, deconstructing a, a complex question. All right. Well, if it's um, if it's okay with you, then Dan, we'll we'll jump into our final questions. Um, what what's the one thing that you think investors are getting wrong or missing in today's market? Oh, I think it's it's the obvious behavioural trap where everyone's succumbing to the noise and the short termism, and people are infatuated with what's happening here and now, and they're probably losing sight of what is more likely to happen over the medium to long term. And I think what you're seeing in financial markets is people get more and more short-term as trading becomes more frequent. There's a herd mentality, and that herd mentality is creating a lot of dislocation. So I guess our, our sort of our counsel for what it's worth is, you know, one of the scarce resources in financial markets globally at the moment is patience and discipline. So if you can find good companies and you've got the ability to wait three to five years for your ideas to play out, you'll see absolutely phenomenal opportunities. I'm convinced of that, and we're seeing some early evidence of it now. So I guess my, my first thing is to dial down the noise and focus on the fundamentals and, and just be patient and disciplined. And really always keep a running list of types of businesses you want to own in the event that you'll ever get to buy them at prices that make sense. Mm-hmm. Could I get you to share a win or a loss from your career in investing? What happened and what did you learn? Yeah, the wins are always a little bit easier than the losses. Look, the, the wins, probably in my career, it was probably quite early in my career when I was at Fidelity Investments in Boston. And we were one of the early adopters of investing in the Indian technology sector circa 20 years ago. And frequent trips to India really, um, in, in hindsight, it was obvious. But even at the time, it was reasonably obvious that what you had was almost an unlimited skilled labor pool. Uh, wages were running one-seventh that of the U.S. Productivity was actually above the U.S. and the work could be done remotely. So at, at the time, it was reasonably obvious that there could be enormous growth in the Indian technology sector. And I remember at the time, we were large investors in the likes of Cognizant, in Cognizant Infosys, Wipro, Tata. You know, in the tech world, they're all household names now, but back then, they were actually small caps and at times micro caps. And that was about identifying an obvious theme researching it that felt really uncomfortable when we started to invest in those companies it was an emerging market it's deemed to be risky um, but again patience and discipline paid off for our investors there before i introduce this final question i just want to put a, a caveat out there for listeners this question is uh, a hypothetical it's meant to be an exercise in long-term thinking um, and it's certainly not uh, a suggestion that you should go out and, and put all of your eggs into one basket uh, but Dion, if markets were to close tomorrow and stay shut for five years and you could only own shares in one company, which company would it be and why? Given the nature of question, I'd say if the markets were shut for five years, I wouldn't want to invest in the ASX. And given their tech reliability, that's, there's some chance that could actually could happen in, in Australia at the moment. Oh, look, I, I might go back to one of the companies I mentioned before. I probably mentioned two, one of which is ResMed, because I think in the next three to five years, this whole cloud that's emerged from GLP-1 drugs displacing sleep apnea devices, the jury will be out within five years. And if you can avoid the volatility and the noise over the next five years associated with that, 
I think you'll come through it in really good shape. And so I'd say ResMed would be one of the companies the markets are shut for five years. We'd be supremely comfortable. A second one, just to build on that, is probably another Australian company called Wally Parsons. The Wally Parsons is probably one of the preeminent engineering firms. Um, basically, there's a lot of ways to win with Wally. You know, what you've seen is chronic underinvestment in conventional energy. You know, it's a function of both the ESG movement, permitting, um, volatile energy prices, but oil and gas capex is 40% below where it was a decade ago. And, you know, the spend has to increase significantly. And Wally is in the sweet spot of participating in that. The other way to win with Wally is obviously the trillions of dollars they've got to spend on decarbonisation. And often, you know, I sort of learnt this early in my career and throughout the sort of the many tech cycles, rather than trying to pick the winner, you're probably sometimes better off selling the picks and shovels. And whether or not it ends up being hydrogen, whether it ends up being ammonia, whether or not it's solar or nuclear, it's going to take a lot of engineers to build those things. So, you know, our view is if you can get through the noise of the next 12 to 18 months around what happens with the oil price, and Wally often is correlated with that, um, you stand back and you say there's an enormous amount that this got needs to be spent. Um, there are very few listed participants that benefit from it. It's a well-run company. Again, we think patience and discipline will be rewarded. Well, Dion, that is two for the price of one on our final question. I'm sure listeners uh, would have enjoyed that. Two completely different ideas. Um, I'd like to thank you for coming on The Rules of Investing. I know we've been trying to line it up for a little while. Um, really enjoyed hearing your views. I really enjoy those articles. As I said to listeners, I'll link those in the show notes. But Dion, thanks very much for coming on and thanks for being our final guest for 2023. Pleasure, James. And thanks for the opportunity. Have a good day.